Hello, my name is Justin Acklew, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to The Important Cinema Club, and today we're talking about probably one of the most famous cinematographers ever to work in cinema, Vilmos Zygmunt. The man who created beautiful ugliness. Is that how you would associate his work, especially his most famous stuff? I think so, and you know... It's something that I only fully realized this week, because we don't do cinematographers a lot on this podcast. We did an episode some time ago where we talked about James Wong Howe and uh, Christopher Doyle. Yeah, we put two of them together. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And what's tricky about cinematographers, we all know that the cinematographer is one of the very most important jobs on a film set. As a filmmaker myself every now and then, the cinematographer is the most essential partner on the team. You know, in interviews, you'll hear directors say that, you know, it's like a married couple being with a cinematographer because the director's vision is going through the cinematographer and on a good set, the cinematographer is just as collaborative about how the images should be captured and, you know, angles and other stuff like that, that he's not just a tool. I think the challenge of talking about a cinematographer on a podcast like this is cinematographers are at the service of the director. So it can be tricky sometimes unless it's you know, one of the real famous cinematographers to point to the through line, find the uh, the uh, auteur theory of cinematography, if you will. Gordon Willis likes to have black parts on the screen. <laughs> That's right. He likes shadows. And uh, Christopher Doyle likes... Uh, colors yep that's right those are our episodes on those two people it's a challenge too because when you're talking about a cinematographer you are typically just talking about the visual side of film which limits you somewhat you're not talking so much about all the other thematic qualities of a film but as i say that i realize i'm full of shit in this instance because vilmo sigmund is a cinematographer whose work is deeply intertwined with all facets of the films he's working on you know cinematography expresses the theme of a movie well that's the thing is that like a cinematographer like anybody working on a set but probably more than most of them his vision can you know define what a movie is and how it's interpreted by an audience like you know the script the director the actors the sound the costuming the production design on a good set all of that matters because they're all invested in the movie and like we watched a documentary about Vilmos this week and the directors that he worked with say he made me rethink how I should express the movie through the visuals, how I should shoot it, because he read the script, he knew what was going on, he wasn't just showing up on set going, all right, boss, where do you want me to put the camera? And, you know, then I'll light it. So he is integral to the movies that we're going to talk about today. Now, I think it is important at this moment to point out what some of those movies are, because you may not know Vilmos Sigmund's name, but you have certainly encountered at least one of his films. He's the cinematographer of McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Images. Deliverance, The Long Goodbye, Scarecrow, The Sugarland Express, Close Encounters. All the great Brian De Palma films, Blowout, Bonfire of the Vanities. Wait, that's not a good Brian De Palma film. <laughs> ah, but he did Obsession. He did Obsession. Oh, Obsession is so good. He also did Close Encounters of the Third Kind, The Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate, The Rose. I, I, you know, you can go on forever. And that's just the golden age 
uh, of Vilmos Zygmunt because early in his career, he started with exploitation films. And then later in his career, he made some films that you might have seen, including uh, Melinda and Melinda, <laughs> Jersey Girl by Kevin Smith, and uh, Assassins starring Sylvester Stallone. And of course, who can forget your favorite TV show, The Mindy Project? Well, he was in his 80s. He just wants to keep working. No one would probably hire him. He'll take whatever job he can. You know, give himself a new challenge. You know, he probably wanted to work on a set that moved fast, that he could do a lot of stuff. And the Mindy Project, a sitcom, that's the kind of sets that, you know, you have to move super quick on. You know, you look at any cinematographer of his generation, any of the great ones, and they have the same trajectory, don't they? They start off making a movie with Arch Hall Jr. (laughs) And then they're shooting like Chinatown or One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or Dog Day Afternoon or, you know, one of those one of those big ones from the 70s. And then in the 80s, you know, they're shooting Ghostbusters, something like that. Uh, Perfectly respectable gig. And then in the 90s and the 2000s, they're shooting Diary of a Wimpy Kid, and then they die. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think it's a mixture of just getting old and people thinking, wow, this person can't shoot a film. He's an old guy. I mean, Kevin Smith on Shooting Jersey Girl said that Vilmos uh, was just a cranky guy that he did not have fun to work with. And that's probably because... You know, he's working on a Kevin Smith movie. Yeah, I read an interview with Vilmos Sigmund where he said, somebody said, oh, I heard, I heard you had a terrible time on Jersey Girl. And he said, well, I, I wouldn't say I had a terrible time. It's just he likes to, you know, do a lot of close-ups of just two people talking and I get bored easily. So let's start, though, right at the beginning, because I think that another one of the factors that made us want to talk about Vilmos is that he did work on all of these, like, really low-budget stuff with some of the bottom-of-the-barrel filmmakers of the 60s. But even before that, he's got to escape from Hungary first. That's right. He grew up in Hungary. He grew up during the post-war period when Hungary basically became a Russian satellite state. It was communist rule. And like so many people of the era, he didn't want to live under that. When he was in Hungary at the time, he became an accomplished photographer. And if you see his early photos, you can see already uh, that he had discovered the kind of lighting that he liked. He liked to use natural light a lot of the time. He also didn't like color very much. He's talked about how in the documentary we watched about him, which is called Close Encounters with Vilmos Sigmund, He said that he felt black and white films were more visual than color films. He says, the colors aren't interfering with the story. You're taking the light away from the light sources in order to create shadows, which tell the story more than the light itself. So he developed the style that he called poetic realism, where the poetry is in the lighting and the compositions. And he was heavily inspired by the Dutch masters like Rembrandt and Caravaggio. His early photography and all of his later cinematography, it's very stylized, but but not in the way that like a Vittorio Storaro movie is stylized. You know what I mean? Well, I think that like when he talked about his cinematography, uh, you know, he would name those old masters. Every cinematographer does. He's like, yeah, you know, Rembrandt, Caravaggio, <laughs> every, every cinematographer says that when they talk about lighting. But it's also, you know, what you said, that poetic realism is that there is a layer of unreality but not one to bring it to the point of stylization that it looks completely abstract, that there is a grounded nature to the images that he's presenting, but there's also through different techniques, whether it be slightly expressionist lighting or the kind of haze that he puts over an image because he loved those Tiffin Pro Mist filters, that you get kind of a, a slight distance from what you're seeing. For example, in something like McCabe and Mrs. Miller, in which everything looks like a painting, an ugly painting, 
painting, but one that has a texture that is very specific to the film because of the number of techniques that they did on the negative also while on set. We'll get into that shortly, but it was interesting for me to watch some of Vilmo Sigmund's movies this week and really pay attention to his photography because it makes you realize how much cinematography and film has changed, especially in the last 20 years, not just with the advent of digital cameras, but with so much post-production tweaking. I think, am I right in thinking that Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which was shot on film, that was the first movie? Yeah, it was the first film to be digitally color corrected. All movies are digitally color corrected now. You look at any like Netflix or Amazon movie and- Ugh, so ugly looking. It has this like heavy sheen on it. And I don't want to sound like a cranky old man, like a Luddite, but you look at Vilmos Zygmunt's films and it's all accomplished in the camera. And he used a lot of different techniques to bring style to it. On McCabe and Mrs. Miller, he did this very unusual technique where he would expose the film before he filmed it, and that would wash away some of the colors. It would, it would take the colors away from the film and create a what he thought was a moodier um, atmosphere. Or on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, in the famous climactic scene with the aliens, he deliberately overexposed the film so that the aliens would look fuzzy. Those were the things he did, but it was all accomplished in the camera. Which, especially on McCabe and Mrs. Miller, that was a big fight with the studio because they're like what are you doing you are ruining the negative before we can actually expose it so what you shot could be completely thrown out if you flash it too much and you know i read an interview with him in uh, american cinematographer where he talked about like we figured out based on the scene what the percentage that we would have to flash it at and we wouldn't know what the result would be but that's where the magic comes the chemical process can give you something beautiful that you wouldn't know how to get if you were doing it for example by a computer which is why a lot of images now look so ugly and and uh, processed is because, you know, a human being has complete control over it. And it's not a chemical reaction that are giving you images and just visuals that, you know, we couldn't think that we would want until we have it in front of our eyes. By the way, he also ran into trouble with the studio on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, because when Julia Phillips, the producer of that film, saw his rushes of the alien scenes, she sent it back to the lab and was like, you processed this wrong. This is clearly a mistake. And he was like, no, 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 this this is right. And in fact, he clashed with Julia Phillips so much that when they did some reshoots and some second unit photography, uh, she didn't hire him back and instead hired you know a couple of other cinematographers, including the great Laszlo Kovacs, and gave them prominent screen credit as additional director of photography, basically as like a spiteful move. Ugh. And by the way, Close Encounters of the Third Kind... His only Oscar. I was wondering how he could have lost for the Deer Hunter, and then I looked it up, and he lost to Days of Heaven, and it's like, well, fair enough. But anyway, Oscars don't matter. And you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> but speaking of Laszlo Kovacs, though, that was his pal, and they came from Hungary together, and both were able to become cinematographers, and... I was looking as like, oh, how did he get the job on McCabe and Mrs. Miller? And it was because Laszlo Kovacs shot Easy Rider and he recommended Vilmos to shoot The Hired Hand for Peter Fonda, which then led to McCabe and Mrs. Miller. But before all of that, we have his first time as a cinematographer uh, on a feature film, and that is on James Landis's The Sadist. Starring the great Arch Hall Jr., who I am so excited to tell the listeners about Arch Hall Jr., you may have seen him in a movie called Ego 
Yeah. MST3K Classic. Yeah, or maybe you haven't. Archall Jr. was a young, I guess, teenage or early 20-something actor and singer whose dad was so convinced that this kid was going to be a star that his dad basically started his own company to make and distribute Archall Jr. movies and record albums absolutely convinced this kid has gone and for the record arch hall jr did not want to be a star of the screen or music uh, i don't blame him because he was not very good <laughs> uh i think arch hall jr has his own charm he has a face that cinema had not seen or seen since yeah that's that's a very kind way to put it the sadist is universally considered the greatest Archall Jr. film. And it really sees Archall Jr. I mean, maybe he didn't want to be there. But and uh, in fact, by all accounts, he didn't want to be there. Oh, but he's committed in this role. It's a 90 minute film that plays out in real time, all on one location, just a gas station in the desert. And it's a thriller about three school teachers who, you know, are on their way to a baseball game and they pull over just to f- fill up the old tank. But they immediately get... Uh, held hostage by a young sadist, a thrill killer, just a real rebel without a cause, played by Archall Jr. Who is struck by uncontrollable sneer face the entire film. My God, Archall Jr.'s performance in this movie redefines the word big. I think it can only be described as, <laughs> just scrunch up your face as big as it can go. And that is the look that Archall Jr. has on his face the entire picture. But even with saying that, it almost makes the picture uh, more suspenseful because it is a, a tense movie experience because you never know what's going to happen yeah as i was watching it i kept thinking it's a shame that archall jr is in this movie because there's a lot that's really good about this movie it's quite tense it's quite exciting it's extremely well photographed by vilmo sigmund but it's got this terrible performance in the middle but now as i get a few days away from it i realize that i wouldn't have it any other way if there was like a great actor in the center of this movie we probably wouldn't even be talking about it today it's got archall jr and there are so many good tense thrillers out there but mm-hmm. none of them have Archall Jr. in them. But Vil Moshe's uh, photography on this is exactly what it needs to be. It's tense it's also uh, imaginative and it doesn't get in its own way as it's telling the story. I mean, again, it's tough on a movie like this of like, what did he bring to it? What did director James Landis bring to it? Like, what did the editor bring to it? Uh, according to the commentary that Vilmos does on the Blu-ray that was released of this, you know, they worked in sync and they basically shot everything knowing how it would cut together because the budget was so low. $33,000 that with inflation is about 255 these days, which is very low for shooting on 35 millimeter even in 1963 they were able to bring the movie you know i think they shot it for three weeks which is kind of long but they were able to do something that for this kind of movie they did not need to work as hard as they did you mentioned that it has imaginative photography and it really does the first time we see archall jr we see the three school teachers from a distance in this gas station parking lot. And then you see a gun emerge into the frame in the extreme foreground, like from the bottom of the frame, it comes up. You see, just see this gun enter. And then, you know, the camera turns around and you see Archall Jr. But that introduces one of the primary visual strategies of the film, which is something in the extreme foreground and something distant in the background. 
And he shot this with a 16 millimeter lens. I'm not going to pretend I know what that means. Th- that's a wide angle. It's lens, a yeah. wide angle lens and it offered much more depth of field. It wasn't technically deep focus cinematography like Orson Welles had on Citizen Kane, but it sort of simulated it, you know, so it gave much more depth of focus than other cameras would. Basically, I don't want to get too lost in the terminology here, but to get that kind of depth of focus that someone like um, Orson Welles and Greg Tolan, his cinematographer on Citizen Kane, gave movies a more uh, kind of visual dimension, what you need to do is you need to uh, have as much light as you can hitting the lens. So this movie was perfect because it was outside the LA sun beating down on them. So they had to close up that aperture, which gave things a real depth of field. And it's funny how things change because now depth of field in digital photography is defined as cheapness, that everybody is looking for, uh, you know, stuff in focus in the foreground and then everything fuzzy in the background, which makes things more cinematic. This just shows how things change as you go along. But I think The Sadist is a good example of a movie that like Vilmos did his best on and he continued to make movies through the 60s, but they were shit on left and right because they were considered just exploitation films. Uh, Vilmos tells a story that he showed the movie to a French producer hoping for a job on a low-budget French production. And the producer was like, how could you make a movie like this? This is trash. And it's like, well, what difference does it make? Look at the cinematography. Look what I did on that, even if you didn't like the movie. It's too bad because, I mean, when you see Vilmos interviewed in that documentary that was made late in his life, he kind of calls them, oh yeah, those were my bad movies. And I don't know, I still think that even if he had only made those movies, he should still be remembered as one of the greats. I mean, he worked for Ray Dennis Steckler, the guy who made the trashiest movies ever. Well, I mean, the most famous one that he worked on for Steckler was The Incredibly Strange Creatures Who Stopped Living and Became Mixed Up Zombies. And by the way, that movie had a dream team of cameramen on it because it was... Vilmos as the assistant cinematographer. The other assistant was Laszlo Kovacs, who, just to underline the point, Laszlo Kovacs went on to make Easy Rider and Five Easy Pieces. And the other cinematographer was Joseph Miskelly, who doesn't have quite as stacked a filmography, but he wrote a textbook that for many years was the industry gold standard. And The Incredibly Strange Creatures, if you can find a decent looking version of it, looks pretty good. It's got some very imaginative, like the dream sequences. All I remember is the end where he's running on the beach and it's all out of focus. Let me tell you, Ray Dennis Steckler's artistry devolved significantly when he lost touch with all oh, of these yeah. guys. What is a Las Vegas Strangler meets the Skid Row Slasher? Oh yeah, I mean that, <laughs> or or any of his pornos, for example. You know, Vilmos early on in his career, he had a good run with the director of the Sadist. They made Ratfink together, which is really great, and was put out by Fertile and Ray's company Retromedia. But then a lot of the films he made around this period are still unavailable in widescreen on DVD or Blu-ray, which, in my opinion, is uh, a sin. It may be hard to tell, like just how good these movies look compared to some other ones, but like, just watch, I don't know, The Beast of Yucca Flats, or a later Ray Dennis Steckler movie, watch any kind of like, really bad uh, Z movie being made at the time by even some of the same people who made these movies, and you can see the difference. Yeah, compare it to like Five Bloody Graves, which Vilmo shot for uh, Al Adamson, and there is a huge difference there. But of course, Vilmos's golden age was in the 1970s, 
Uh, I this week I revisited McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which was Vilmos's real star-making film, the one where it really all came together for him. And what can I say? I'm not a poet. I don't know how to put into words just how extraordinary that movie looks. Beautifully dirty is how you could describe it. Beautifully dirty, and I actually kind of weirdly misremembered the movie because. I would have always said that McCabe and Mrs. Miller is one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen, and it is, but it's beautifully ugly. Every shot is not uncomplicatedly pretty. Had you forgotten that? The fact that it's covered in mud from inch to inch? I mean, I guess rationally I knew that, but the fact that it's so ugly and so dirty makes it more beautiful. I mean, there are just those incredible scenes of like McCabe sitting in the bathtub or Julie Christie like in her bed or in the opium den that are so lush and luxurious. And there are some other scenes at the brothel during the the high season, during the, the busiest time of the week when it's lit with a lot of red and you i sort of in my memory remembered it being very cozy looking which it is but what i'd forgotten was how textured it is and how claustrophobic it is well i think that one of the advantages of mccabe and mrs miller and this is why vilmos was a perfect fit with robert altman is that as much as vilmos liked the pictorial qualities and the texturing of an image he also liked the improvisational nature of shooting stuff and i mean that's altman's bag as well that like you know you can try to capture the perfect thing by but having kind of the actors work around it or the cameraman have to capture it as it's happening can deliver even better results than kind of locking it down and making sure Kubrick style that things are exactly the way that you imagined it. And that continued through the collaborations like on The Long Goodbye, another film that Vilmo shot for Altman but one of the things that he did on that film is the camera is always moving, oftentimes unmotivated. And because of that, it gives the film a kind of nervy energy that uh, pictures before that really didn't have. And it's something that it's weird to see it in The Long Goodbye because it feels so fresh when this is a technique that TV shows like NCIS do, which is the camera is always moving no matter what is happening to give things an energy. Talking about his visual identity, that remains consistent through a lot of his golden age stuff. Vilmo Sigmund loved long takes and moving camera. He talked about in the documentary how he cared very much about the story, and he felt that too many cuts jerked the audience's attention away from the story. I mean, talking about moving cameras, like the film that he made right after Long Goodbye, Scarecrow, the director originally envisioned that the camera would be always moving because it followed the two principals, Gene Hackman and Al Pacino, as they went on this road movie thing. And when he told us to Vilmos, a Vilmos shit, that's eh, not really the way that I pictured it. Yeah, I mean, I was impressed to hear that. And then he eventually won the director, whose name I forget because he's not one of the not one of the big guys who directed that movie. Jerry Schatzberg. But yeah, apparently Jerry Schatzberg came around to Vilmos's way of thinking. Yep. I mean, if you, as a cinematographer, can read a script and you have a visual idea and then you can then communicate it to the director, that is the way that you would want to work because... You're just not showing up and going, all right, I'll make it pretty for you. Just point me in the direction that you want me to go. And that's it. That is not how Vilmos worked. And I'm curious to know, like, if that was a conflict on some of the pictures that he made. I mean, he talks about that when he did Obsession with Brian De Palma. He really enjoyed it. And Brian De Palma made him move the camera much more than he usually would and do stuff that were not part of his vocabulary, but that he enjoyed pulling off as well. I watched Scarecrow this week. I'd never actually seen it before. It's one of those 
those new Hollywood films, but it's one of the less famous ones, I think, especially considering that stars Gene Hackman and Al Pacino. I was quite moved by it. It's Hackman and Pacino as these two kind of like two-bit guys, these wanderers who dream of starting a car wash together. They, you know, meet each other while they're hitchhiking at the side of the road and they feel a kindred spirit, but they're two dum-dums, they're two dopes. And they eventually wind up in jail together. They wind up going all around the country together, fucking up and messing up. And Al Pacino has been in the Navy for five years. He went to the Navy immediately after knocking up a girl. And he has sent her money while he's been in the Navy for all this time, but he hasn't spoken to her, hasn't really contacted her aside from sending her money. And it's one of those 70s new Hollywood movies that doesn't really have a plot, but that eventually builds up to a cumulative... Uh, impact that I think at the end of the movie is quite devastating. And how did you uh, evaluate the cinematography as it was playing or like what Vilmos brought to the project? Well, I mean, there are a lot of things that a cinematographer does that you don't necessarily notice if you're not looking for them. In Scarecrow, there's much that he does that's imaginative that because the story is being told well, kind of flies under the radar. Like there's just a scene where Hackman and Pacino are driving along in a truck and we're seeing them from in front of the windshield and Hackman pulls over into a parking spot, but the camera continues moving forward and continues at the same speed until it slows down and the the truck that Hackman and Pacino winner is framed at a distance. And then the camera starts pulling back in towards them. Or there's another scene in the prison where Pacino is following Hackman around. Hackman's ignoring him, but Pacino keeps following him. And the camera kind of glides over the surrounding tables following them as it before it closes in on them when they're sitting down. And I was watching it thinking, how did how did he fit the camera in there? The magic of a crane or some other contraption that he was able to build because Vilmos Thanks to his work on early, like, no-budget pictures, some of the studio directors that he worked with, I say studio in the sense that there was a studio behind them, were a little bit taken aback by his uh, filming techniques. Like, John Borman on Deliverance said that he got real annoyed by Vilmos going, what are we doing standing around? Come on, let's shoot, let's shoot, let's get going! Probably because he was used to working on stuff like The Sadist, where he had to finish it as quickly as possible, or else there would just be no movie. Something else I'll just say about Scarecrow, I know that Vilmos liked working with anamorphic widescreen and he liked working in long takes and you can see a lot of that in that movie i mean scarecrow also has the beautiful ugliness that we were talking about before but it has a lot of long takes where it's pacino and hackman in the middle of the frame with a vast landscape behind them and that's very deliberate on his part he liked frames where you could see both actors delivering dialogue but also get the background, get the setting, uh, get the atmosphere, and have a long take where all of that can be conveyed. In one of the movies that I watched this week, The Rose, the Bette Midler picture directed by Mark Rydell, you know, I really thought about what Vilmos brought to the project because, like, there's a scene near the end of the movie where uh, Bette Midler is having, like, a tearful discussion while on a payphone, and her face is com- in complete darkness, and there is just light illuminating the back of her hair. And so like that forces the audience to have an emotional reaction that they may not realize, 
based on the visual information that is presented to us. It is not just lighting things so they look pretty. It's making a choice of what will not showing light, for example, on somebody's features, actually have an impact emotionally in this shot. And I think that Vilmos, you know, when he was firing at all cylinders, that was something that he was highly aware of. And he not only brought, you know, the expertise to this stuff, but also the artistic uh, value to it as well. And I know people listening to this may be like, why aren't they talking about like Blowout or The Deer Hunter or Close Encounters or Heaven's Gate? And it's because like, those are for their own episodes. (laughs) Like, because I think we'd get tangled in those, uh, you know, directors and productions if we jumped into them. Although I think we can safely say all those movies look good. And we should note that Vilmos says this himself, that the gigantic failure of Heaven's Gate essentially torpedoed his career from that point forward. Well, he says that, I guess, but he continued to get very good jobs after that. I mean, Blowout came after that, The River. Yeah, but look after that, like Jinx, the Bette Midler film directed by um, Don Siegel, uh, Table for Five, No Small Affair, the uh, John Cryer film. Yeah, but and, you know, there were some high profile, if not exactly artistically brilliant jobs like The Two Jakes, Sliver. Uh, real genius. Uh, yeah, Maverick, Assassins with Stallone. And a lot of these movies, you know, obviously those are not at the same level that like McCabe and Mrs. Miller is. But also Hollywood was not making movies like McCabe and Mrs. Miller anymore, right? Like middle brow cinema had changed. You just look at the film that he made with Sean Penn starring Jack Nicholson, The Crossing Guard. And, you know, it looks like a film that was made in 1995 and the visual language and just the texture was different than what you would get in something in like, for example, 79. And by that, I mean, like, it's ugly, (laughs) like 90s cinematography, uh, especially when it was studio stuff, does not look very good. It has a flatness to it, which is unfortunate. But, you know, that was probably what was demanded and what was expected of him. But thankfully, Vilmos got a second shot when the woodman came calling. That's right. In the last decade of Vilmos's career, he worked three times with Woody Allen. Those films were Melinda and Melinda, Cassandra's Dream, and You Will Meet a Tall Dark Stranger. And Woody Allen has worked with many great cinematographers over the years, Gordon Willis, Vittorio Storaro among them. And we both watched Melinda and Melinda this week kind of wondering like what Vilmos would bring to it because Woody Allen he has worked with cinematographers who I think have left a mark on his films Sven Nygvist Ingmar Bergman cinematographer you can definitely tell the pictures that were shot by him that he did for Woody Allen and I mean the Vittorio Storaro ones recently like Wonder Wheel and A Rainy Day in New York not all the artistic decisions are great but they look like no other Woody Allen film there's an impact on it like It would make a difference if Storaro was not working on that film. But Melinda and Melinda? Nah, it could have been any cinematographer that Woody was working around. Uh, The 2000s could have shot it. Still has that orange hue to it all. You know, not that much invention. Terrible film. Yeah, it it is pretty bad. It's, uh, you know, for anyone who cares, Melinda and Melinda is... The the gimmick of it is it's a bunch of playwrights sitting around a table. One of the playwrights is played by Wallace Shawn, and they're... Uh, pondering a question which I'm sure has uh, has kept all of you up at night, which is, is life fundamentally comic or tragic? And uh, if you asked me that question, I would say, uh, why not both? But instead, these very sophisticated playwrights say, well, let's let's take a story and tell it both comedically and tragically. And it's the story... And also, boringly. Yes, it's the story of a woman named Melinda played in both 
plots by Radha Mitchell, and she arrives at a former classmate's New York apartment, all strung out and weird and crazy. And in both stories, you know, there are romantic entanglements and uh, this and that. And one of the stories has Will Ferrell. So that's how you know that's the funny story. Yeah, doing a Woody Allen imitation as every leading man must. And as Will said, while we were watching it, he's like, it's kind of like an SNL skit where Will Ferrell's doing a, you know, Woody Allen parody. And he's right. And that's why I actually think I like Will Ferrell like, I think he's the best thing about the movie just because he's he he's so extreme. It's not like Kenneth Branagh and Celebrity. It's it's Will Ferrell doing a goofy, it, it, not a technically precise, but just a really goofy. Oh, yeah. It is not the uh, perfect approximation of Woody Allen that Kenneth Branagh does. Much to the horror of any viewer that watches Celebrity. But yeah, I mean, we were both looking, I think, for... Where did Vilmos put his stamp on it? And as you said, it looks like one of the ones that Darius Kanji shot for shot for Woody Allen. And I mean, Woody Allen is kind of an interesting case because, I mean, I think a lot of us just sort of assume that he goes through the motions these days, that he cedes a lot of control to the cinematographer. And maybe that's true, but also there's so much consistency in his films. They all look a very similar way, even even the ones that cinematographers leave their stamp on, which I think means that he has he must have very strong opinions. And maybe uh, at this point in time, like in 2002, when he was shooting this film, his opinions had kind of solidified at a certain point where early on in his career, you can feel more of an experimentation in his work that he shoots, for example, with someone like Gordon Willis. While here, he knows what he wants and Vilmos is just there to execute that vision, pretty much. Well, the Close Encounters with Vilmos Sigmund documentary has an interesting little passage at the end about the Woody Allen phase of his career, where Vilmos talks about kind of the way he negotiated with Allen to add some add some stuff to his style. And the opening scene of Cassandra's Dream, you see Colin Farrell and Ewan McGregor like running along a lakeside and then onto a dock as they go look at their new boat and the camera follows them and apparently this was the very first time that Woody Allen had used a steady cam and he used it at Vilmo Sigmund's insistence and then by the time they made you will meet a tall dark stranger Allen was starting to write scenes for the steady cam and I mean it's a bummer that you would hope that like near the end of his career working with Woody Allen would give a chance to Vilmo to kind of let loose and he didn't on Melinda and Melinda and I mean, I guess he got to let loose on the terrible Brian De Palma film, The Black Dahlia. Which he got an Oscar nomination for, by the way. That's a real, like, this guy ain't going to make many more movies uh, Oscar nomination. And just wrapping up, I mean, what more can you say about Vilmos Sigmund? There are not a lot of cinematographers who have left a body of work where you can say, that's like a Vilmos Sigmund movie, or that's a Gordon Willis movie, that's a Greg Tolan movie. Because cinematographers are ultimately at the service of the director. It's very rare to get an auteur cinematographer. And it's no exaggeration to say that Vilmos Zygmunt, along with Laszlo Kovacs and Gordon Willis, basically created the visual style that we associate with the 70s new Hollywood. Absolutely. Uh, many of them also worked with Ray Dennis Steckler. <laughs> yes. So as for usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Zach Fowler. And he uh, writes... 
Just before quarantine, I decided on a theme for my monthly movie nights. So good, it's good. A lot of my friends like famously bad movies, and I sat through The Room or that movie with Gary Busey uh, turning into a dog, but I don't really enjoy the experience. I decided instead to start a screening series of films that are either viral or have a sense of virality, which might wrongly be called So Bad, It's Good, or Actually Good, when in fact they're just good or even great. For the first three showings, I want to do Don't Let the River Beast Get You, Speed Racer, and Who Shot Captain Alex, hoping to alternate between mid-to-large budget films and micro-budget indies. I want to show interesting films to people who aren't film fans as such. Do you have any recommendations for this series? Thanks a ton from Atlanta, Zach Fowler. Well, this is an interesting question because I feel like we are perpetually talking about movies like this on the podcast. Movies that are kind of like, seem to some eyes like they're so bad they're good, but they're actually just so good they're good. And the challenge of coming up with an answer to this is like, what what have I not talked about? What in like 250 plus episodes have we not mentioned? Problem with answering this question is that like your your taste may differ from mine like if i say you should take a look at the late period jerry lewis movie cracking up or for that matter the golden age jerry lewis movie the ladies man i would not recommend to spring cracking up on your friends <laughs> i mean i think those are so good they're good but they're definitely like acquired tastes or or spicy tastes that might turn some people off but i think i might point to a movie like uh, the Boxer's Omen, the Shaw Brothers horror movie, with the caveat that it is very gross and has a lot of shocking stuff in it. But it's it's the kind of movie that like seems ready made to have a YouTube supercut of like the weirdest moments and like have a how did this get made episode on it. But it's actually like beautiful and imaginative and crazy. Yeah, saying on that Shaw Brothers past stuff like Buddha's Palm is also like really crazy and like filled with wild visuals you will see nowhere else lasers shooting out of fingers and it's easy to watch a movie like that and be like it's goofy and unrealistic but there's real beauty there and it's enjoyable i feel on a level like something like speed racer and at the same time you know just glancing at my blu-ray shelf something like true hark's uh jean-claude van damme outing knockoff has been put within the like it's so bad category when in actuality there's so much invention and just kind of wonder on the screen within the package of like a supposedly dumb action comedy that if you contextualize it correctly for the people that are watching it i think there's a lot to enjoy there that most people stumbling upon it um wouldn't find the value in i think what's important is that you just set up the people that are viewing and i said this I feel like just a couple of episodes ago with what you're about to watch so they can like, you know, uh, be looking for specific things. I've got two more. I just thought of Fantasy Mission Force with Jackie Chan. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and Godzilla versus the Smog Monster. Wait a minute. But didn't you have a bad experience with friends and Fantasy Mission Force, Will? Well, I guess. Yeah, we talked about that, that I showed it to some friends when I was in like grade 10 and they didn't like it that much. And you know, I guess I didn't contextualize it right. I mean, any movie um, without the proper context or the right expectations can go sour for an audience because like, just think of something like Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 that was reviled upon its release because it was such the polar opposite of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, I remember being a teenager and the common perception of the film was that it's bad. And that is as far from the truth uh, today where the film is basically considered a classic of the genre. Actually, that movie could possibly show at your movie club, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. So, yeah, basically, I think the entire important cinema club back catalog of episodes, if you skip around, you can easily find some suggestions there. <laughs> I would be shocked if I came and I was like, there's a whole bunch of new movies I've never mentioned <laughs> since recording this podcast. 
But yeah, I mean, it sounds like uh, the letter writer is on the right path right from the get-go. If he's starting with some Wood, Don't Let the River Be Skate You. I would recommend to pairing Don't Let the River Be Skate You with Local Legends. I think that is a, an essential thing together for uh, new people to Motored Media to get the full experience. And so our second letter is from Will Jones, and it goes, Hey, Justin and Will, love the podcast. You are still consistently the most enjoyable film podcast I listen to. Thank you. Uh, I just finished a Robert Rodriguez episode and just wanted to drop a quick note about where he goes from here. He has directed episodes of The Mandalorian, and I think he's due to direct another Star Wars show. I know you guys are pretty ambivalent on the Disney industrial complex, and that's one thing I really like about the podcast. Ambivalent? I think it's bad. <laughs> like, the whole system and the way that it works, and that it's a giant monopoly and it's crushing things. But, uh, unlike Will, I can enjoy things that they put out, because it's there. But what is... I do not wish death upon Baby Yoda. <laughs> uh, but what is interesting about The Mandalorian is the way it is shot not on a green screen but in front of a giant hd led screens with backgrounds generated to match up with the camera movements in the making of features rodriguez seems to be totally in his element as if hollywood has caught up with him having a studio in his backyard approach it seems like the perfect fit for him and doesn't hurt that the mandalorian is basically just el mariachi desperado in space uh you know i've seen that thing like the giant uh, green screen that they use that is matched to the camera and automated lighting when they shoot stuff for the Mandalorian. Uh, it looks great, but uh, my opinion is just go to the desert to shoot it. You're fucking Disney. You have the money to do that. Oh my god. Uh, yeah, just hearing about that. I'm glad that Robert Rodriguez is happy, but it gives me a headache just thinking about it. You know, it. if it was a little indie uh, movie and they figured out how to do that to be able to squeeze it under their budget, I'd be like, oh wow, that's amazing. But it's not. It's literally the biggest company in the world doing it. <laughs> like, Go to the friggin' desert. It's inspired by the Rifleman. Guess what? The Rifleman shot in the desert. That's how they did it. Anyway, moving on. Also, in regards to your 300th episode, can I put forward a suggestion? Like Godzilla and Jackie Chan, I guess you need someone with a giant sprawling filmography, so I would suggest Takashi Miike. Miike's work is often flawed, but there's so much to explore. Some of my favorites are Ace Attorney, which is like a John Grisham novel adapted by Edgar Wright, Yakuza Apocalypse, First Love, Visitor Q, and so much more. Uh, I'm a big Takashi Miike fan, and I don't know how he fell out of the directors we were about to do, but he did at some point. He was on our list very early on. I think we should definitely do him. I mean, I wouldn't call myself a huge fan or anything. I mean, I've only... I haven't... I've only seen a small fraction of the thousands of movies he's made, but yeah, I mean, I would love to explore him more. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm a big fan of Takashi Miike, even though that you gotta ready yourself if you're a fan for that Miike middle, where an hour just you know drags by for some inexplicable reason, but that's just what he likes. Anyway, uh, thanks very much for the letter, Will, and people, you don't need to suggest a 300th episode. We have it locked down. We're not gonna say what it is, Shrek, <laughs> but we got it, so don't worry. <laughs> All right, so for our Patreon this week, what are we talking about, Will? We are talking about La Femme Objet, and what is La Femme Objet, you may ask? It is a French porno film that was recently released by Vinegar Syndrome. And in addition to talking about that, we talk about uh, various porn films, particularly porn films that Vinegar Syndrome has put out. And uh, you may be wondering such questions as, what does a French porn film look like? 
Is it good? Are there things in it that you enjoy beyond the obvious? And we will answer all of those questions. Yeah, so only for $5 a month, you can be on the inn and maybe you won't even have to watch the film because you'll hear us talk about it. Who knows? You will if you pay $5 a month, patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. And I'd uh, just like to announce that we did not make it to 400 Patreon subscribers. Very sad. Oh. But uh, thanks to an angel investor who <laughs> dropped enough money to take us over the goal me and Will will be doing five American Pie films and doing a whole podcast about it. We'll probably do it sometime this month, I think. We're, we're, we'll hammer out a day. Yep, we will do it this month and we will drop the podcast right after that. And like our earnest episode, if you're not a Patreon subscriber, when it drops, you will not be able to listen to it because I will then remove it from the uh, patron feed. So make sure to become a Patreon subscriber now. Patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. Are the films as funny and erotic as they were when they came out? Maybe we'll fall in love with the American Pie films. I'm open to anything. (laughs) I didn't really grow up with the American Pie films, you know. I didn't watch them when I was a teenager. Me neither. I saw them. I think we were too young for them at the time. I think so, too. I saw them when I was in undergrad. and Well, I saw the first two, and I basically just watched them like be like oh yeah i've never seen these let's cross these off the list Mm -hmm. i remember my stepbrother had it and i probably bored his dvd watched it and was like "Eh, yeah not very funny (laughs) but it is what it is i can see why people like this kind of stuff so what are we doing next week will next week we are going back to the art house for one of the real ogs that's right i'm talking about michelangelo antonio i've seen that you've been watching his films on letterbox so you got a little bit of um you know runway to talk about his pictures and you won't have to marathon seven of them in a week i would say that over the last year or so i've developed a new appreciation for antonioni uh, i've always basically liked him but Uh, His films have hit me much harder in recent months than they had before. So I'm excited to delve a little bit more deeply. And I guess we'll probably talk about La Ventura and uh, The Passenger, perhaps. That sounds good. That's one of his classic uh, Italian films and one of his American ones. I think that's a good mix. So that's what we'll be doing next week. And until then, my name is Justin DeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin here. Just want to thank some of our new patrons, including Al Fallick, Matt Haller, Rainer Kienbach, Eric Gillian, Carlos David, Jude Lindsay, and Derek Godin. Thank you very much for becoming patron subscribers. It is very much appreciated. And I should let people know that I have started to post more regularly on my YouTube channel, Film Trap. I'm trying to post two to three videos a week, which includes reviews of new physical media or any movies that catch my attention, and a new regular show called The Best New Movie Show, where I pick three new movies that come out every week and decide which is the best one. That show drops every Saturday, and the other videos drop whenever I have an opportunity to make them. So make sure to subscribe on my YouTube channel. Just search Film Trap on YouTube, and the channel should pop up. And I now return you to your regular scheduled programming. Hey, it's been a while since we've done our What Are We Listening To podcast corner. Do you have any new podcasts that you're checking out? Oh, I've been listening to Lex G's podcast. Uh, Lex G is a sort of like Twitter personality, and he releases, he's just started this podcast called the Lex G Movie Podcast, where it's him basically just riffing about like subjects of interest. Lex G always has come off to me like a very sad and lonely man. (laughs) I think you're right. But I mean, this podcast, he just did an episode about Tom Cruise that I think is incredible. It's like really funny, but also 
you know, very smart. I think he's got a good take on Tom Cruise. And I mean, I've never heard somebody riff like this. He's got an immense talent for this thing that he's doing. And I also think Lex G has a very unique, he has a perspective that all, that's all his own. It's funny because as someone that does a lot of like commentaries by myself or videos, I find the idea of doing a podcast by yourself frightening. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm amazed he can do it, but he just goes off on, he just goes off on, on these riffs. Uh, I, I can't do it, Justin. People should just listen. I to wonder it. if he has friends. I mean, who knows? There are some mysteries that should never should never be solved. But what about movies that he likes? Will does he ever talk about those? Yeah, he did one on Doctor Sleep recently that I thought uh, had a good take on Doctor Sleep. He also likes Tom Cruise. He's not making fun of Tom Cruise. He's like he really articulates. I think what was what was great about Tom Cruise for someone of his generation. So I've been listening to the What a Cartoon podcast. I think it doesn't have its own channel feed. I think it's part of Talking Simpsons. And what's really interesting about that is that. They do something that like we could never do, which is they deconstruct and play audio clips of the movies and talk for four hours about one feature film. I mean, it's really impressive, uh, those guys. And it's not boring either. I'm like, ooh, I want to know all of this stuff. Well, I mean, I'm amazed that they can do that because like when we talk about stuff, we we genuinely run out of steam after 25 minutes. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. And that's like someone's entire career. <laughs> I think the logic that I usually have is like, I want people to listen to this stuff, even if they haven't seen the movie. When when you listen to something like What a Cartoon, it assumes you've seen the film or you have some, uh, you know, history with it. Otherwise, you may be lost a little bit in what they're doing. But, you know, those kind of deep dive, especially on animation, like we talk about cinematography, you know, animation at a certain point, you're like, mm, very well animated. Like, what else is there to say about it? If you're like deconstructing the film scene by scene. And I mean, on Talking Simpsons, they can do a lot where they'll talk about particular cultural references you know it, 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 they they often interpret the simpsons as like a time capsule of 1993 right using like references to talk about certain subjects and you know why was this joke in this episode as opposed to being like homer is funny head bonk make me laugh <laughs> yes and i think we've uh, both been listening to whenever quentin tarantino pops up on a podcast <laughs> isn't that fun yeah i have yet to listen to the edgar wright one i'm afraid although I, I, right that he did for the empire magazine show yeah but i genuinely do like listening to him talk about movies which, you know, I know he rubs a lot of people the wrong way, maybe rightly so sometimes. But I mean, he has a genuinely, I think, unique perspective. He has a unique body of knowledge. He's a talker like no one else. And I know that he shows up on the Pure Cinema podcast, is it? Yeah, that's right. Because now the Pure Cinema podcast is basically like the house podcast of the new Beverly. So, you know, it's like Tarantino's calling up his pals that are working for him. And he's like, listen, I want to talk to you for, oh my God, four hours the newest episode is. Well, you know, he's in Tel Aviv now and he has no one to talk to there, I guess. So like Patton Oswalt calling up the radio station in Big Fan to rant about to rant about the team. That's that's what Tarantino I guess is doing i feel like tarantino even in his like day-to-day -day life a couple years ago i wonder like how much he talked about movies with people or he just talked at people about movies being like you don't know what i'm talking about but i'm just gonna say how amazing this specific person is that was in this tv movie and you're gonna be like uh-huh whatever you say mr tarantino you remember about a year ago i can't remember what magazine it was but basically in the lead up to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Irishman, there was a magazine that published a conversation between Tarantino and Scorsese, where they just talked about movies together. And it was really 
and oh, it was a uh, it wasn't a magazine. It was a a web article. Okay, uh, I think it was published in a magazine too. Too though, it was like Directors Quarterly. Oh, was it? Okay, probably like Vanity Fair or something like that. It was interesting to read Tarantino talking to somebody who is like not just at his level, but also like beyond his level somebody who he respects who knows more than him about a lot of movies like it's a different experience than listening to him on on a podcast which i don't mean as a knock on that podcast Mm -hmm. well i mean tarantino does tend to dominate the conversation and what's great about him is when he talks about movies there's tons of stuff you have never heard about but sometimes he'll talk about very passionately about a movie that i have seen i'm like no no that's bad don't listen to what he's saying do you ever read his reviews on the new beverly website i think they were all taken down from the new beverly website i just checked a few days ago and i think it's because they're going to be publishing a book which was announced a few months ago so that's why they scrubbed the internet i mean, I, don't, I don't know if they're they're all that good <laughs> uh i think they're good when he can kind of like rant about i don't know his favorite blue bruce exploitation stars yeah i mean i think the articles are fun when they like sort of reveal stuff about his life or like like there, there was one where he's talking about jimmy wang Yu, and he's like you know this isn't necessarily the movie i'd use to sell kung fu movies to peter bogdanovich but it's and and i'm reading that and thinking he has definitely tried to sell kung fu movies to peter bogdanovich what's great about those kind of personal flourishes is like when on a podcast tarantino's like listening to your podcast i learned about this twilight time blu-ray company and decided to check them out and it sounds funny on the surface it's like how had he never heard about that but then you remember oh it's probably because he has every film that he would ever want on 35 millimeter and he just gets his personal projectionist to you know put those on the reel if he wants to watch it and now he's an ocean away from that 35 millimeter collection so he's buying blu-rays yeah that's right he's one of us now and there's no going back